Hello, and welcome to the Without Exception podcast. My name is Josiah Ott, and on this podcast, I seek to share practical content for everyday Christians. My hope is that I can help you live out your faith each day without exception. Welcome to episode 22 of Without Exception. Thank you for listening. Today, we're going to continue the idea of studying the Bible for ourselves. That's where the title Becoming a Berean came from. If you missed the first episodes, I encourage you to go and listen to them. And today we are going to be diving into the topic of hermeneutics. I'm super, super excited about this. Hermeneutics is a topic I'm very passionate about. And we're going to overview literary context this week. All right, we're going to give you a little bit of a, a background on all this stuff. And it's really good. First, I do want to mention, uh, for those of you who followed along with the podcast social media, I have not been posting anything really at all. And you've probably noticed that I just wanted to put something out here to kind of explain uh, that my wife and I are just in an insane busy season. I guess say hello to my daughter, the whole family. It's been a little nuts. Ever since the beginning of June, there was a time we were gone for like three out of five weeks um, out of town and we just had a lot going on. And then we've been busy like every Saturday for like a two month stretch. It's just been a little bit nuts. And then I've got a lot of schoolwork coming. And so basically I've been so busy with everything that I have to do that I have not had the bandwidth to come up with any extra bonus content to share on social media. It's not that I don't want to. I just, I, I've been super busy and I just don't, again, I don't have the bandwidth personally to be able to do any more than I'm already doing. I'm hoping maybe in like the December, January period of time that this will change and I'll try to start posting more stuff throughout the week to encourage all of you who are following along. But in the meantime, it's just not going to happen. I know in, uh, I think three or four weeks from now, I'm not sure exactly of the date I'm doubling up on classes for the very first time. And I've been doing uh, online classes since the uh, October of 2017. And I've never done two classes at once. LBC normally has you do only one at a time. And so it's going to be a little bit crazy. So it's going to be even more busy than it is now. But after that, I am hoping to get back and start sharing some extra content with you guys. But back to what this week we are going to be talking again about hermeneutics. Now, if you don't know what hermeneutics is, Basically, it's the study of interpreting the Bible, specifically the study of principles or methods for interpreting the biblical text. So if you've ever you know, asked the question, how do I read the Bible or how do I study the Bible? How do I, how do I know what it means? Well, hermeneutics is the answer to this question. There's all this list of principles and methods and the ways that we should approach the biblical text in order for it to be properly interpreted and then applied to our lives. And so we have to first acknowledge that the Bible is different from pretty much every other book on the planet. First of all, it's the only book that is God-breathed and has the intrinsic divine qualities as it is scripture. But then beyond that, it's a collection of 66 smaller books written by many authors over thousands of years on multiple contents, who most of all of them had different backgrounds. Some came from um, better places in society than others. Different people came from different geographical regions. I mean, it's it's pretty different than pretty much any other book you can find. And so in light of this, and in light of the fact that it is God's word to us as believers today, it's a very special book, which means it kind of requires some special understanding, special interpretation in order for us to get what it's supposed to be saying to us. As Christians, we don't want to just read the Bible 
uh, to receive head knowledge. You don't want to just read it and say, oh, cool, you know, Paul the Apostle did this. That's great. Well, what's that got to do with me? No, instead, we want to interpret what God is trying to communicate to us, to you, to me, as his children, his body, his bride. I mean, there's so many different uh, illustrations we could use there. So this is the thing that hermeneutics seeks to answer. And I know it's a big word, but it's fun. And then now you kind of got an idea of what it means. And so we're going to do, I'm hoping, uh, three to five episodes on hermeneutics. There are so many different principles, methods, different things uh, for interpreting scripture. I probably won't cover all of them. It might not be the most thorough coverage of everything, but I just want to basically encourage everybody to, to apply the Bible to your lives, but also to know how to interpret it. And so we're going to go through the ones that at least I think are the biggest deal, um, starting with literary context uh, today, which for me, I think is the most important one of all. But before we uh, dive into that, again, concerning the idea of hermeneutics, I have two comments to make. And the first one is the accurate biblical interpretation honors the original author both the human author and more importantly, the divine author, God himself. So we have to acknowledge that God did speak through uh, through human writing, right? There was a human p- person that wrote everything down, but obviously God is ultimately the author. Scripture is God breathed, Paul told to Timothy. And so we know this. And so if we honestly believe this, and we, if you believe especially that the Bible is God's word, don't you really want to know what he is saying to you? And uh, sometimes people have this thing where they want to go to the Bible and come out with their own ideas like, oh, you know, I got this crazy idea from scripture and it, you know, the original author probably would have never guessed this at all, you know, and it's, it's amazing. And I just, I put this meeting into the text and the next thing you know, it's like, well, is that really God's word? God had a plan when he spoke this and there was an intent and the desire in his heart for what we were to receive. And then we go and we put our own, our own meaning into it. And that's really not, healthy. It it doesn't make sense, first of all, if we want to be receiving from God to throw our own meaning into the text. So that's the first comment. The second one uh, comes from a previous professor that I had at LBC. Uh, Actually, I believe it was my last class uh, prior to this one. His name is Doug Finkbeiner, Professor uh, Finkbeiner. He was one of my favorites. He's a great, great uh, teacher. And he said this, and I believe it was him. He might've been quoting somebody else, but I'm going to attribute the credit to him. He said, the Bible can never mean what it never meant. Now, obviously there is fresh application. There's fresh relevance and different things where the Bible can be specifically applied to our lives today. I'm not saying that there was only one specific point that could have been made that, you know, is irrelevant to our current context. That's not what I mean. But we don't want to go again and to put our own meaning into the text. I think sometimes people come away from times of reading scripture and they have this super revelatory idea like, oh, nobody's ever heard this before. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure that the original person that wrote this down that had God speak it to them probably never saw this coming either. They probably had no idea about this. And that's not good, right? Like, again, we want to go back to what God is the original author meant. Like if, if it's his book, we want to honor the fact that he's the author. And so we should try our best to know exactly what he intended when he spoke, not just what we want. So diving into the concept of literary context, again, this is the first part of our study on hermeneutics, um, one of hopefully many, and one that is likely the most important. Literary context basically is the context of the actual writing, the actual literature. I'm not a profound English student or anything, but it's basically the spot where a verse lies in between 
the other verses. It's where it sits in the the actual scripture, the actual written word, the actual literature is, I, I guess, where that would come in. And regarding this, I have two quotes I want to share from Grasping God's Word. Again, the book by Duval and Hayes. I referenced it in last week's podcast episode as a recommended resource. And they had two quotes regarding literary context that I thought were helpful before I dive into some examples that should uh, illustrate how important this is. The first one is, quote, We would go so far as to say that the most important principle of biblical interpretation is that context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. All right, that's page 149. Then on the next page, page 150, they say, quote, but every violation of context is a dangerous matter. By honoring the context of scripture, we are saying that we would rather hear what God has to say than put words in his mouth. Context determines meaning. Again, they shared that. So we really have to acknowledge the fact that there is a specific reason that the the verse is located where it's located. And it's also important to remember at this point that when the Bible was originally written, each individual book, none of them were written with chapters or verses. A lot of people don't know that. The Apostle Paul didn't write, you know, sit down in jail and say, I'm going to contact that church at Philippi. They were pretty cool. And I'm going to encourage them in the Lord. And all right, at chapter one here, um, how am I going to start? All right. Chapter one, da, 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 Paul and Apostle. Here we go. And then, okay, I'm kind of changing gears here. All right, I'm going to write a second chapter to him. No, that's not how it was. Like he wrote one long string of text and then in, I can't remember, I should have looked it up, but it was thousands, I think hundreds of years later, I think it was over a thousand years later after scripture, the the canon was closed that they actually decided to assign chapter and verse numbers to everything. So it was definitely not in the original uh, text. And so we don't want to look at each verse as having its own autonomous meaning. We can kind of have that tendency because we can go and quote and give them a chapter and verse. And it's like, this stands on its own, but it really doesn't. In the context of, of scripture, it has a specific place and that's where it belongs. And if you know the literary context surrounding it, it really offers a lot of meaning. And I, originally when I looked into this, I kind of had this thought of like, well, doesn't that really limit what it actually means? And I've found that a lot of times it actually furthers what it means. And again, it's honoring to what God originally wanted it to say. So I want to offer four examples to you or no, sorry. I want to offer three examples to you. Originally, I had more and I decided to condense it a little bit. I had a feeling this podcast episode was already going to be a little long. So I have three examples of reasons that we should pay attention to literary context. All right. So my first one comes from Psalm 46, verse five. And it says this, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And now that is an awesome verse about God being in the middle of a, of a woman, a woman of God, not a male, but a woman of God. And we should put that on a coffee cup or a pillow and in a woman's devotional book on how if a woman has the Holy Spirit, she's got God within her, she will not be moved. Amen. That's amazing. Well, not exactly. I mean, sure. One of the dangers of literary con of uh, avoiding literary context is all, all of what I just said is technically true. Like somebody with God on, on the inside and the eternal hope in Jesus Christ will not be moved. Like, sure, that's true. But you don't want to take a verse that might that might not illustrate that point to illustrate the point. So here's what it actually says. So that was verse five. If we start in verse four, 
we'll get a little bit of an idea of some context here. And it says this, it says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. God is in the midst of her. Well, who is her? Her is the city of God. Throughout scripture, many times, uh, Jerusalem or the city of God is referred to uh, is, is feminine. So in the midst of her, God is in the midst of Jerusalem, the city of God. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. So we look at this and we realize that it's not about a modern believing woman and it doesn't really belong on a coffee cup or in a woman's devotional. It's not about uh, God being in the midst of a woman. It's God being in the midst of Jerusalem as a city. And it was his, again, it says the holy habitation of the most high. That's what it was. That's what the city was referred to as his holy habitation. So God is in the midst of of the city. It's his holy habitation. Like that's what it means. And the crazy thing is you only have to read one other verse to determine the context. Like you read the one verse before that. And suddenly it's like, wait a minute, this is not at all referring to women believers. So that's first example. Second example, the first example, again, is it's something that you might not hear a lot. I've seen people reference it, but it's not a super common one. Second one is super common. This is probably the most uh, commonly misinterpreted text because it's taken out of proper context. And it's Matthew 18, verse 20. Probably a lot of you have it memorized. It says this, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And man, I have heard this time after time after time after time, where people say something to the effect of, well, when the second person walked into the room, Jesus showed up or all right, look at it. Look around. How many people are there here? Oh, well, there's so many more than just two or three. And if God promised to be in the midst of two or three people, I'm sure he's here today. Something like that. I've even heard, this is crazy. Again, I'm talking about not trying to put words in God's mouth and not trying to get into some really super weird revelatory stuff that the original author would have been like, where did you get that from? I've heard people say this. Well, you already have two or three everywhere you go because you have the Holy Spirit. So you plus the Holy Spirit equals two people. And Jesus promised to be there when there's two people present. So as long as you have the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and it's like, that's really weird to kind of divide like the Holy Spirit, who is also known as the spirit of Jesus Christ and say like, as if the Holy Spirit being there means that Jesus isn't there. Like it's, it's kind of weird, but like you get into the super revelatory stuff to try to prove like, oh my goodness, like Jesus is going to be there if there's two or three people. And I've heard in, there's entire messages that people have devoted to this verse and not taken it in context. And something for me, this verse, it's actually a little personal because when I first heard this verse and was really like diving into it, I was like, that doesn't make sense. Like I, God isn't going to be present with me. Jesus isn't going to be with me if I don't have a buddy present. Like I remember in the Old Testament that, that God had promised to Joshua, like wherever you go, the Lord your God goes with you. Now I know that Joshua was a big deal leader, but Joshua was under the old covenant. He couldn't go in to the Holy of Holies and God promised to be with him wherever he went. So now that I'm a new covenant believer, how come I need a buddy or two in order for Jesus to show up? Like this doesn't make any sense. And so it was something that kind of like, it, it was something I didn't understand. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Well, we're going to look into this and see what it's actually referring to. And I think it's going to be really good. This verse also shows the importance of following the titles of various pericopes. All right, pericope is a fancy word. But basically, if you see a little section of scripture, it can be one paragraph, can be multiple with the title above it. 
That is a pericope. Those sections, that's what it's called. It's the technical term. So this shows the importance of like the pericopes were the titles were placed there by the biblical translators to help drop a hint as to what's going on. And this verse about your prayer meeting or your church gathering is in the middle of the pericope titled, If Your Brother Sins Against You. So right there, you're like, oh, there's sin, there's an offense. If my brother sins against you, if I got a prayer meeting of two or three people, Jesus promises to be there. Like this, none of this really makes sense. So starting in verse 15, I'm going to read a section of scripture that should help clarify. It says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, I'm not the best at math, but my understanding of me plus one or two additional witnesses equals two or three who are gathered in Jesus's name. So Jesus's promise here is specifically when dealing with offenses, which he promised would come. I think, I don't remember where it's at, but there's another portion of scripture where Jesus said that offenses will come. It's pretty much a guarantee at this point that you're going to have to deal with offenses in the church and amongst believers. So he's saying here that if you properly deal with this and you go initially by yourself and then you take your, your witnesses, the two or three that are gathered Right. And so then, and then when he talks about things being bound on earth, being bound in heaven, and when he says about people agreeing on earth, like all of this is in regard to dealing with church offenses, the dealing with discipline in the church, of addressing issues in the church. And here's the thing immediately after Jesus says that where two or three are gathered, I'm with them. Immediately after this, you know what Peter says? It says, then Peter, you know, it goes into then Peter. He asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive somebody? 70 times seven or 77 times or whatever. I mean, the, the translation there, people disagree on it. It's a hyperbole that, so it's irrelevant. Like you, you lose the point. If you're trying to establish the actual number, the point is, should I forgive somebody more times than I can count? You know? And Jesus is like, yeah, absolutely. And then he goes and tells this parable of the unforgiving servant that basically illustrates that no matter what offenses are committed against us as believers, uh, they don't even compare to the offenses that we have committed against God. The offenses that have been committed against you, they don't compare to the offenses you've had against God as, as a sinner before you knew the grace of God. Like that's, that's where all of us come from. So we see here that Jesus teaches about offenses and then he teaches about forgiveness, which is the natural response to dealing with offenses. And for some reason, so many people believe that Jesus has this massive like squirrel moment, you know, like the classic, like, oh, look, there's a squirrel. Somebody's talking and the squirrel distracts them. And all of a sudden they're, they're completely distracted because there's a squirrel. Like, did Jesus really teach like that? Where he was going and talking about offenses, squirrel moment, prayer meeting. Uh, if you got three guys there, I'll be there. It's good. Um, oh, yeah, we were talking about offenses. Let me get back to that. Okay. Uh, offenses, offenses, offenses. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know where we're at. Um, 
let's deal with the topic of forgiveness. No, that is not at all what Jesus was doing. He was talking about his presence being with them in dealing with these issues. And again, Jesus's presence can go with us anywhere. We don't need to be in church. Not that that's discounting the importance of church, but we don't, you can't make the claim, like, especially if you dive into John chapter four, Jesus addressing the woman at the well, the Jews and Samaritans disagreed on where to worship. The Jews said Jerusalem, and then the the um, Samaritans said that on Mount Gerizim, I think it was the name. I, have, I didn't look it up before the episode. I think that's what it was. So they disagreed over the place of worship. And Jesus said, hey, where you worship is irrelevant. The important thing is how you worship. And so then we go and say, well, you need to be at church and gather with so many people. Like, no, what matters is how you worship. And anyways, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get off of that or I'll be here a while. The last example. So I have three examples of places, things taken out of context. I've shared this one in a previous podcast episode, but I'll reiterate it anyways, because like the last one, I hear it all the time and it drives me nuts. And it's uh, John chapter 12, verse 32. And this is Jesus saying this again. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so we come to church and we hear things like, if you are faithful to lift God up in praise and worship, God will bring home the prodigals. He will bring home the lost. He will draw people to salvation in him as you worship. Really? Is that really what this means? And there's even a song that we used to sing. It's one, I'm sure it has chords, but a lot of times we would just sing it and clap and it was fun. And it was lift Jesus higher, lift Jesus higher, lift him up for the world to see. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And so we're here like clapping and singing, lift Jesus higher, which is really ironic. I'll get to that in a minute. So then, you know, you get this idea. And again, I've heard it shared in churches so many times, like you, and it's an encouragement to get people to respond and worship. And it's like, there's plenty of verses, like go read some of the stuff that David said. There's a lot to encourage people to worship. This is a terrible example because in the following verse, this is great. So he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That's verse 33. Verse 34 says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Again, this is the second time, like along with the very first example, that in just reading the next verse or the previous verse, you can get a very clear illustration that that everybody that takes it out of context completely misses because they won't even read two verses. Like it's only two. Like how much, is that really too much to ask? And so you go and look at this and Jesus being lifted up has nothing to do with praise or worship in this context. And that's what people always quote this verse. So people could say, oh, that's not what I was talking about. Well, that's the verse you're quoting. So that's what you're talking about. Literally, it was him being physically lifted up off the earth, off the ground to hang on a cross. Like he's not no, no, no longer on the ground. He's physically lifted up. And that's what it means. He says in John chapter three, that even is. Uh, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness on a pole, like, and then the people would look to it by faith and they would be healed from the serpents that had been sent to bite them and, and cause this disease or, or sickness or whatever it was. So literally Jesus talks about being lifted up twice in the gospel of John. And both times he's talking about being lifted up on a pole or a cross. And it's to signify the way he was going to die. He wasn't going to die by stoning. He wasn't going to die by beheading, he, you know, there was a handful of ways that he was not going to die. He was going to die by crucifixion. He proclaimed this in John chapter 12. And the irony, like I go back to that song of lift Jesus higher, lift Jesus higher, which like, yeah, I want to to lift Jesus higher. I want to praise his name. Like that's all great. But the irony is in, in this context, lift Jesus higher literally means place him on the cross, place him on the cross, place him on the cross for the world to see. 
He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to me. And so literally, our and the, the ironic thing here is our role in lifting Jesus higher is that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was my sin. It was your sin that put Jesus on the cross. So we all did play a role in lifting Jesus higher for the world to see and having him draw people to himself. But he's talking about grace. He's talking about the fact that his death is the free the free gift for sinners to come and to be saved from their sin. And that is what draws people. It's the Holy Spirit through the message of the gospel that draws people. It's not our praise and worship. And so the thing I love about literary context, those are all the examples I'm going to share, is that it's something that everyone can do and very easily. We're going to dive in in some later episodes on historical and cultural context, biblical genre, and uh, maybe the whole council of scripture, different other topics that maybe without a commentary or without a study Bible, they're not always easy to access. You might go and say, well, I have no idea what the historical historical context is for second Kings. Like, I don't know what's going on. And sure, that that's very understandable, especially even if you read a lot of that stuff, it's very hard to understand and be able to place it into context if you don't have the big picture of what's going on in the time of Israel's history. However, literary context doesn't require anything more than a Bible or access to the Bible on the YouVersion Bible app or a website, whatever. It doesn't require any fancy additional resources. It just requires that you actually read like a whole chapter, for instance. Uh, again, Grasping God's Word with Duval and Hayes. I can't remember the location, but I, rem- I it stuck with me. So I know it's from their book, but I, I didn't find it in the book. But they recommend a minimum, if you're going to do literary context, uh, one chapter, minimum one chapter to read the whole chapter to understand the context of a verse. But they said, preferably read three chapters, read the chapter before and after the chapter that the verse you're trying to figure out uh, fits in. And it's like, that seems insane. But it's like you go and realize that it's necessary to be able to get an idea of what actually is going on, especially like you might see a word like therefore. Sometimes you'll read a chapter begins with the word therefore, which is crazy because you go and see, well, therefore is like as a result of everything I just said, I just laid out this whole argument. And as a result of my argument, here's my conclusion. So you read the conclusion and you're like, well, what was the argument? Well, you got to read the previous chapter a lot of times. So you need to really go and kind of dive in and, and realize that you can't just go and pick one verse. Uh, personally, I'm reading the Bible in one year with, uh, I can't even remember the guy's name. It's one of the uh, one of the uh, Bible plans on version. And I don't actually love this plan and I probably won't do it again. And it's not, not this guy's fault, but you know, it's the classic read an old Testament scripture, read something from Psalms or Proverbs, and then read something from the new Testament. And so often he'll like dabble in the book of Proverbs. And then like, you won't touch Proverbs for like another week. And then you'll go back to Proverbs and read like five more verses and you completely lose context. And I I think I'm going to try to stick to just reading through uh, like entire portions because so many times like it cuts off at the reading because you you have to, he tries to keep it to a reasonable amount. And then you go and you lose, you know, everything else in between. And so it's not that it's bad, but it's just not ideal because then you, next thing you know, you're taking things out of context because you're skipping around. So it's important again, try to read at least one chapter, especially if you ever preach, this is huge. I mean, there've been so many times I go to preach and I'm like, I'm going to preach on this verse. And then I read the whole chapter and I'm like, wow, I really, Maybe I didn't, wasn't missing it, but I was missing some of the depth. Like sometimes it doesn't change the meaning, but it just adds so much extra depth, but it's so, so crucial. And I really hope that you hear my heart in these matters. You know, it's not my goal on this podcast to come across as arrogant or right about everything or about this topic. I don't want to be prideful. 
I don't want to go and say, I'm right, you're wrong. If you've taken this out of context, you're dumb. Like that's that's not my goal at all. My hope is to help people become better at engaging the text of scripture in their own reading, and then to let that text engage them in their own lives and impact them on a day-to-day basis. And I know that this is amazing because this is what God has done in my own life. I went from just reading you know, here and there and not understanding things to actually studying scripture, actually trying to follow through with these principles. And it completely changed the way that I read scripture, the way I interpret it, the way I preach it. And it's been so good for me. So my goal and my heart is to have you experience that as well, not to just come across with an argument and say, I'm right and you're wrong. Uh, That's not at all my goal. So I hope you hear my heart with this matter. But in conclusion, I just want to encourage you to remember that a commitment to determining the original meaning of a portion of scripture is a commitment to receive God's word as he intended it. And so that's what hermeneutics is all about. And literary context is a great place to get started. So with that, I thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Without Exception podcast. I pray that this episode has been edifying to you and that it is something you can put into practice in your own life. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and share it with others. If you were listening on Apple, I would love it if you would leave a review. It helps with the exposure of the show. That said, I pray you have an awesome week. And until I see you next time, let's live out our faith each day without exception.